Please, 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 man, please, somebody help me. I can't breathe. Nearly a year after we first heard them, the words still sting. This week, the trial of police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd got underway in a Minneapolis courtroom. It's a case in which the stakes couldn't be any higher, a defining moment in a national debate over race and policing that has been raging ever since Floyd's cries of anguish were first captured on cell phone video. For prosecutors, it's also a case that is or ought to be open and shut. Chauvin had planted his knee on Floyd's neck and for 9 minutes and 29 seconds kept it there, unmoved by the suspect's anguished cries for help or the pleas of a gathering crowd that he was killing him. But Chauvin, like all defendants, gets to make his case, and his defense lawyer, Eric Nelson, signaled in his opening statement that he'll put the dead victim on trial, playing up evidence that he says will show Floyd died not from Chauvin's brutality, but from an overdose of drugs combined with high blood pressure and heart disease. We'll talk to a journalist covering the trial from Minnesota Public Radio to get a sense of how it's going, and then we'll talk to a former Justice Department civil rights attorney about what it's like to prosecute police officers for excessive force on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So it is hard to imagine any piece of evidence more powerful than that video. And obviously all of us saw it at the time, but to watch it again being played in that courtroom is, is such a wrenching experience. Uh, and it does remind me of just how much, you know, technology has changed the way we approach these cases. No doubt uh, incidents like this have been happening for decades, but with cell phones and, you know, cell phone videos being as common as they are, we can now all see them and hear them. And uh, it makes such a huge difference in the way law enforcement response. Well, I agree. And and this looks to be an extremely strong case for the prosecution. But as uh, I'm sure the veteran civil rights prosecutor that we're going to talk to soon on this podcast, uh, you know, prosecutors don't take um, anything for granted um, when, you know, you need 12 jurors unanimously uh, to convict. And that's never easy, uh, no matter how much evidence there is and how strong the case is. But I will say, as you, you, know, you said, that the stakes are so 
high in this case after so many cases that ended in acquittal or non-prosecutions because uh, these are hard cases to bring. I think a lot of people are hoping that finally this will be the, the beginning of the end of police impunity, that they can commit brutality against civilians um, and uh, too often against persons of color uh, and not pay any price for it. But it's, it's not necessarily the end. Just yesterday, a St. Louis jury acquitted three white cops who were prosecuted by the Department of Justice for violating another African-American cop's civil rights. So it's still not easy or a given that when the police prosecute cops for excessive force, that they're going to win. And it's also not given that when there is what to us looks like pretty dispositive video evidence of police brutality that juries will convict. Just think about it. There was video in the Eric Garner case. You might remember the the case of the South Carolina cop who shot a man in the back as in he ran back, away from right. in the back as he ran away from him. It both of those cases resulted in acquittals. So it's still a close call whether or not juries will convict cops who are being prosecuted for brutality. I, I doubt, though, there's been any video as powerful as as this one. But uh, you mentioned the St. Louis case, which actually I'm not familiar with. What were the circumstances uh, in that one? So this is this is a, another incident where uh, there were uh, three police officers who were dealing with a uh, riot or a protest that was going on. And one of their fellow police officers who was African-American was undercover. So they didn't know he was a police officer, but they tackled him in the middle of the protest, beat him so brutally that he ended up in the hospital. And the Department of Justice ultimately decided to prosecute these three cops for violating his civil rights. And as I say, a St. Louis jury yesterday acquitted the cops. And he didn't have his badge with him that he could show, hey, I'm one of you guys. They 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 were beating him. They weren't going to let him pull out his badge because they because they were worried yeah. he might pull out a gun. So he was uh, it was a it was a brutal beating of a fellow police officer who was African American and a fellow police officer who testified about what happened to him. Well, pretty uh, pretty striking there. But you know, look, like I say, the, the, this case is of a totally different magnitude, both in its social importance and in the facts themselves and the, just the the power of that video you cannot you cannot overstate that the one thing i'll be looking for is when the Henneman County medical examiner Andrew Baker takes the stand he's the one that made the ruling that while what Chauvin did may have contributed to Floyd's death it was not the sole cause of death. And that's pretty much what the defense case is going to be, that there were other factors that led to Floyd's death, the drug use and the um, yeah. and the heart problems. Yeah. And we're going to we're going to get to talk to the career prosecutor about that later. But there's other there's other big news in Washington, D.C. today relating to justice. Joe Biden nominated his first batch of federal judges, 11 of them who have been touted as amongst the most diverse judicial nominees. I don't know if ever, but it's pretty close. Three African-American women, first Muslim American appointed to a district court, a uh, Asian-American woman, but the one who's getting all the news 
Yes, is Judge uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who has been nominated to take Merrick Garland's place on the uh, D.C. Court of Appeals, traditionally a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. We had just a week or so ago, we were talking about uh, with with, uh, Jonathan Allen about his book on the uh, 2020 presidential campaign and the moment when James Clyburn, went backstage during the debate on the eve of the South Carolina primary and pushed Biden to make a commitment to name an African-American woman to the Supreme Court as his first selection. Biden agreed to do it. He did it during that debate. And uh, I think uh, everybody puts uh, Judge Brown Jackson at the top of the short list uh, for who that um, nominee could be. And this assumes, of course, that there'll be a vacancy, most likely uh, Stephen Breyer, who's getting up there. Who she clerked for. He'll be 83 this year. And yeah. uh, uh, I'm sure he is coming under pressure, whether it's uh, explicit or implicit, to give up that seat uh, so that uh, Biden can name an, an appointee. And by the way, um, uh, on uh, Tuesday, Jen Psaki, the White House um, spokesperson, was asked whether uh, Biden uh, was still committed to appointing a black woman to the Supreme Court. And she said, absolutely. So um, well, that's a pretty I think, good. Uh, I think the, uh, right, the script there. has been the script has been written. But so the, the, there are two aspects to this story that there's the diversity of this uh, group of nominees that uh, Victoria alluded to, but also the speed with which uh, Biden has appointed a uh, large number of appellate court nominees. And it's another example, I think, of Biden learning the lessons of his old boss, Barack Obama, who did not move nearly as quickly to uh, name uh, appointees to the to the bench. Uh, and once he did, the uh, Republicans controlled the Senate. And when he left office, he left uh, something like 105 uh, vacancies, which then Donald Trump was able to fill. It wasn't because he he didn't want to. It was because of uh, the obstructionism of the Republicans. But still, Biden doesn't want to be in that position. Right. A couple of factoids I just thought uh, we should mention about Judge Brown. You know, number one, uh, she was a clerk to Supreme Court Justice Breyer after going to Harvard Law School, being editor of the Harvard Law Review. She later spent some time as a public defender. But factoid uh, number two, she really burnished her credentials during the Trump years when she wrote the opinion that Don McGahn had to testify uh, before Congress about his conversations with the president on uh, obstructing the Mueller investigation. And that was, a, that was a, a landmark ruling. It was very strong, and it's exactly what the Democrats wanted. And third, and this is the most interesting one to me, is she is married to a doctor, a surgeon doctor, Patrick Jackson, who is the twin brother of William Jackson, who married Paul Ryan's wife's sister, Dana, Paul Ryan being the former Republican Speaker of the House. So I think that makes him Paul Ryan's brother-in-law. She's a lock for Republican support when she, when her nomination <laughs> yeah, exactly. comes up, right? Not yeah. sure about that. <laughs> I'm but. not sure it's the most interesting, but it is the quirkiest. Well, and, it's um, the quirkiest. Okay. And, and, and just going back to her credentials, 
you know, I think that in some ways, maybe the most important thing is is what you you know mentioned that she was a former uh, public defender. I I don't I struggling to think of who or when the last Supreme Court justice up there was had actually been a public defender. So no Supreme Court justice has ever been a public defender before. But Thurgood Marshall, who obviously founded the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and was a, a very prominent and active uh, civil rights attorney, also took on a few criminal defense cases before he was elevated to the court, okay. before they were public yeah. defenders. You know, historically, the major credential for whether or not you are on the Supreme Court is whether or not you went to Harvard, Stanford, or Yale Law yeah. School. Uh, th- that, that seems to be the, the principal determinant. Well, she checks those boxes, right? Yes, ex- yeah. she does check those boxes. But you're right. So uh, one of the things about the diversity, at, at the big push amongst the Democrats is not just kind of demographic diversity, uh, experiential diversity, if you will. Uh, you're going to see a lot more public defenders probably coming up through the federal ranks. And I would say that if she is nominated for the Supreme Court, uh, there would be a certain poetic justice uh, to it. Um, uh, She's going to fill Merrick Garland's seat on the D.C. Circuit, you know, Garland, of course, was you know famously denied even a hearing after he was nominated for the Supreme Court. So to have his uh, Democratic successor uh, move up the ranks uh, will will certainly send a message on, on multiple fronts. All right. Well, um, a lot to get to on this show uh, with this uh, huge trial going on right now. So let's get to it. We now have with us Brant Williams, a correspondent for Minnesota Public Radio, who is covering the trial. Uh, Brant, welcome to Skullduggery. I'm glad to be here. So, look, uh, this is a trial the entire country is watching intently. Give us a sense of what it's like in Minneapolis uh, a year, nearly a year after the uh, awful events of the death of George Floyd. Well, leading up to the trial, it's been, you can feel some tension kind of ramping up. There's been the presence of more uh, helicopters flying around different neighborhoods of South Minneapolis. In downtown Minneapolis, there's all the security precautions being placed around the Hennepin County Government Center, which is where the courtrooms are located. Other public buildings downtown, like City Hall and the federal courthouse, have also been basically barricaded. There are tall fences. In some cases, there's razor wire or barbed wire. Uh, The police stations in around the city of Minneapolis are also barricaded. I pass by the 5th Precinct Police Station uh, usually every morning on my way downtown, and that is also completely blocked off. So I, I think... With all of the security presence in town, the sense is that authorities are preparing themselves for more trouble, especially if Chauvin is acquitted. I think they're they're worried that folks are going to take to the streets and engage in some uh, unrest. Brent, what about just sort of psychically and emotionally? I mean, everybody who tuned in uh, to the trial that uh, started on Monday saw the uh, the 
replaying of of that nine and a half minute tape, that just wrenching, uh, terrible uh, thing to watch. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, there's been testimony over the last couple of days um, about what happened and about people seeing George Floyd die in front of their eyes. Um, for for Minnesota and Minneapolis to relive that must be must take a toll. Yeah, I, I think. There are a couple different things. Number one, people, we've, we're starting to come out of, like with the pandemic, things have been starting to get a little better in, in with people being vaccinated. And so on one hand, there are people who are starting to feel a little bit more relaxed uh, in that regard. And then you've got the trial now um, as it's we've led up to the trial and we're reliving that original event of George Floyd dying under the knee of Derek Chauvin. And people are starting to remember, at least just from my sense of talking with folks, starting to remember that feeling of here's something really bad that happened in our city. It's gone around the world with all the the, the demonstrations and protests. I mean, life was already upset by the by the pandemic. And then you had this other force acting upon our lives in a way that a lot of people didn't feel like they had any control over. You know, once there were the arsons and the looting in, you know, I, in my neighborhood, I'm, I'm three miles away from where the third precinct uh, was burned and down Lake Street, which is the main thoroughfare in Minneapolis, where folks started to travel up and down and start damaging those businesses. I'm like two blocks off of Lake Street, further south into the west of where this happened. And there was still an impact in my neighborhood. So People in a lot of parts of, of Minneapolis felt like they were drawn into something and they couldn't they couldn't uh, move away from it. They couldn't escape from it. So now we're in a trial about this event. Again, I think there's a sense that people are feeling, boy, I hope people can just kind of take a step back and measure their responses in many ways while still hold strong feelings about the the events that happened on May 25th. But hopefully people, while expressing themselves, will also express a little restraint. Brent, the, the whole city is watching, the nation is watching, but it's ultimately going to come down to the jury. It's uh, 12 men and women in that courtroom right now, picked over the course of two weeks. What do we know about them? Do we know how they've been reacting to the trial so far? So, yeah, the um, there's a, a total of 14 because they have the two alternates in there. And uh, they are actually the most diverse jury that that I've ever seen sitting on a, a, a criminal case that anyone's that I've covered and just talking to legal experts uh, who've got a lot more experience than I have, have said similar things, that this is a very diverse jury. Now, since we only can have uh, two pool reporters in the courtroom at a time now because of the COVID restrictions, we have to rely on what those pool reporters have uh, let us know about us as far as the actions of, of jurors. I was particularly interested in reading a pool report from the opening statements when the prosecution played the nine minute and 29 uh, second video. And they said it was, they could see that the jurors were being attentive. They're not turning away for the most part. But one thing you couldn't get a sense of was because everyone is masked, it's kind of hard to get a lot of their facial expressions. Um, sometimes the eyes don't reveal a lot of what somebody's thinking. Sometimes people make uh, gestures with their mouth. You know, they might uh, grimace or something like that, which you can't tell by 
uh, with the masks on. So we're we're just trying to get a sense from the pool reporters inside the courtroom of of how the jurors seem to re- be reacting. And for now, it seems most are being attentive for the most part. And the, the video has been played a couple times and, and they're still watching. You know, I, I, re- I read one account from a reporter. It must have been, I assume it was the pool report that one of the jurors seemed to breathe in at some point and another seemed to uh, grab the arms of his or her chair. And it were suggesting that uh, that this was a show of emotion. But that seemed like fairly thin evidence of that. What about Derek Chauvin? Um any sense at all of of uh, any interaction between uh, him and the jurors? Has he been looking at them? I know you haven't been there uh, during the trial so far, uh, other than some jury selection. But have you heard anything at all about his demeanor? Well, I, you, you can see him on camera, uh, but right. unfortunately, we can't see who he is looking at when we're not in the courtroom. So I, I do remember noticing that during the opening statements when the prosecution was playing the video, that Chauvin was not turning away. He was actually, he was looking upwards in the direction of where the screen would be placed in the courtroom. So my sense was, was that he was actually looking and then he'd occasionally put his head down to, to write down some notes. So, and he'd been doing that at, at other times during jury selection and during the trial, seemed to be intent, uh, attentive, not just sitting down, slumping, looking at something else. I don't know what he's writing on his notepad. Uh, he might be writing notes. He might be doodling. We don't know. It's, we can't tell. But it, it's um, it's interesting to see how he also reacts. I, I did see him walking into the courtroom on the day that I was uh, the pool reporter during jury selection, watching him walk in with his team. He carries a briefcase with him. He interacts with his lawyer and with the other uh, lawyer on the team. And also today, I noticed that he was being identified by one of the witnesses. Uh, She indicated that she recognized the man in the video as being in the courtroom. And when asked if she could identify who that person was, she she apparently mentioned that she saw him sitting there. And Chauvin stood up and he took off his mask to be identified and put it back on. And then he sat down. So. The video is such a powerful piece of evidence. It's hard to imagine how the defense can overcome that. Uh, But they've got a defense and it's going to rest on the cause of death, that uh, Chauvin's knee was not the cause of Floyd's death. There was an overdose of methamphetamines and opioids that he had heart conditions, he had high blood pressure, and that that's what caused his death. And the judge made a very critical ruling last week in which he determined that evidence of the drugs found in Floyd's car would be allowed as entered into evidence, as well as evidence of a prior encounter he'd had with police. What what did you make of that ruling and how significant do you think it's going to be in how the jury processes the uh, testimony and evidence? That ruling is interesting. As, as you mentioned, well, actually, previously, the judge had denied the defense's motion to include information from that 2019 arrest, saying it was not relevant, saying that Chauvin and the other officers in 2020 had no knowledge or they weren't at the 2019 arrest, so it was not relevant. Uh, but later on, uh, defense attorney Eric Nelson said there's new evidence that's relevant to the 2020 
uh, incident. And so during those arguments, Nelson brought up that uh, in, in 2019, there was a lot of similarities between what happened, how George Floyd reacted to officers when basically being um, arrested for suspicion of, of drugs, selling and, and carrying drugs. Um, in 2019, officers approached a car he was in. They pointed a gun at him and had him get out. And Floyd started to react in a similar way to, to how he did in 2020. Now, the judge said he was, he said, okay, there's a physical and medical reaction that George Floyd had in 2019 to having a gun pointed at his face, that shock of the, the, the gun and the fact that he had ingested drugs. So the judge said that was basically, that's fair game because you can use that to, to make your medical case. But what's not fair game is to try to use the events of 2019 to suggest that Floyd was uh, malingering or faking that he was, you know, in 2020 that he was, you know, because this is what he does when he's, um, you know, faced by police officers and he has drugs, he, he swallows them and then fakes a and, and that's what the judge did not want the defense to be able to do. So uh, in the hearing discussion, though, it's like when we reported on this, it's interesting getting the, the feedback uh, from from people who are just like, well, that's just another way of of blaming the victim in this case, of blaming George Floyd for his own death. And that because he is a, is a black man who, who took drugs and wound up dead at the hand of police officers, that somehow he was to blame. Now, uh, Cahill pushed back against any notion about that. Judge Cahill told defense attorneys, he's like, look, I'm not going to let you use this as a, a way to, to to blame Mr. Floyd. That's not what this is about. And it didn't sound, and, and defense attorney didn't make any, he didn't say that this is what they're going to do. But I think it was made clear that that would not be allowed in the courtroom. So I guess I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen when the defense, this starts to come up at trial because there's been so many pretrial motions and arguments made about this, that there's going to be a lot of objections and sidebars to make sure that they don't go, the defense doesn't go too far on that. What has uh, struck you so far uh, in terms of the, um, in terms of the testimony and the way the, uh, the two lawyers or the lawyers are um, handling it? Well, the testimony so far seems to be going along according to the roadmap that the prosecution set out, the types of witnesses they were going to bring forward. I think uh, Jerry Blackwell, when he made his opening statements, said, you know, they're going to bring, like their main parts of their case were medical testimony, use of force testimony, and the video are like the big things. And so right now we've got mostly witnesses who are, they're, they're testifying as to the video. You've got the young woman who, shot that viral video who testified and some other eyewitnesses who are at the scene and another young woman who's there who also took some video. And as you would expect, the defense's counter is just basically to point out that these people did not witness the whole event. They did not see the initial confrontation between Floyd and the police officers. They did not know that the officers had called uh, an ambulance for George Floyd when they saw that he had some uh, bleeding from his nose and from his mouth. And he, the defense is going to try to show and has been trying to say, trying to point out through cross-examination that there was a growing crowd that was maybe out of the sight of where the bystanders were positioned, looking 
at George Floyd on the ground. They could not see behind the police car that there were other officers and that there were other people gathering. So it seems like they're going right now according to the, the video section of their case. And, you know, the defense is going to try to, as best they can, say there is other things going on that, that you as a bystander were not aware of and that he's hoping that the jury will see that there's much more to this case than just the nine minutes and 29 seconds. So this trial is only one of the consequences of the uh, death of George Floyd. The other has been a, an ongoing effort on the part of the public to reset, rearrange its relationship with the police department in the city. There was a huge effort to to reshape the police department, to change its funding. What's going on in that space right now? Right. So as you mentioned, last year after George Floyd um, was killed, there was a um, pushed by the Minneapolis City Council to basically dismantle the police department and build a new public safety entity in its place. Uh, But that had to go through the city's charter commission because it would require a change to the city's charter to allow that type of change to happen. The charter commission at the time said, you know, we didn't have enough time to view this. There's too many vagaries here that we we would like to see more details of. And they said, we're going to need more time And so there was not enough time on the deadline that you would need to get something on last year's ballot. So it basically stalled. So earlier this year, uh, several city council members kind of revised that effort. They brought up another uh, proposed charter amendment to, again, dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department and rebuild a public safety department, much in the way that the state of Minnesota has a public safety, a department of public safety, which includes a law enforcement division and, and other divisions. And right now, that has already gone through the, the city council's uh, first part of their, um, their in their purview, what's under their purview of, of how to get this going. They've sent it off to the Charter Commission, which is considering it now. There will also be opportunities for the public, more opportunities for the public to weigh in because the council still will have to create ordinances that will shape how this new public safety system will work if it does get passed by a majority of, of citizens at the, uh, during the next election in 2021. So that's where that stands right now. Grant, just one, one last question back to the trial and uh, casting forward a bit. Mike mentioned before that uh, the cause of death is going to be sort of the focal point of, uh, of this trial. And there will be um, dueling autopsy reports. Uh, the the Henneman County medical examiner will uh, be presumably one of the key witnesses uh, for the prosecution, Andrew Baker. What do we know about um, uh, who the defense is going to uh, bring forward uh, to rebut the prosecution's case on the medical issues and what their main argument is going to be? Uh, you know, off the top of my head, I, I don't uh, recall the which um, experts they're going to have um, to to basically refute the the prosecution's case as far as the the medical evidence. But in the, his opening statements, Eric Nelson brought up the defense attorney brought up how the state has brought in additional experts to what he described as refute parts of the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's report. Because they, he said the state was not pleased with the fact that Andrew Baker did not go as far to say that the positional asphyxia or the you know the compression that that uh, Derek Chauvin applied to George Floyd was uh, a main part of of his of his death. So it sounds like they're going to push that and say no. Even the 
you know, the prosecution doesn't have as strong a case on that as as they would like. Because the state, as I understand it, the state autopsy report says the cause of death was cardiopulmonary arrest. It doesn't explicitly say it was asphyxia, right? Right. It said it was complicated by the the officer's um, intervention. Um, But as Jerry Blackwell uh, pointed out yesterday, that everybody dies of cardiopulmonary arrest. It's like when you're your heart stops. Your heart stops, I mean, yeah. Yeah, your heart stops. Although I, w- I would say in a normal case, if the medical examiner doesn't back up 100% what the prosecution is is uh, is arguing, that could be a problem. But this isn't a normal case. And we right. do have at the end of the day, this incredibly powerful video. So we will see. But Brant, thanks uh, for joining us. And we'll definitely want to uh, keep in touch as the trial proceeds. Great. Nice talking to you all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Grant. We now have with us Christy Parker, who knows a thing or two about prosecuting police officers for excessive force. She was a uh, civil rights prosecutor in the Justice Department for 15 years. She did multiple cases of police brutality and excessive force. Uh, Christy, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me. You know, we wanted to talk about the difficulties of bringing cases against police officers. But I have to say, you know, having a video like the prosecution has in the Derek Chauvin case has got to change the calculus dramatically. I think it certainly does in a case like this one where the video shows an incident that was not part of a rapidly unfolding situation where an officer made a split second judgment, but shows an officer doing something very calculated that goes on for nine minutes with a group of bystanders, you know, many of whom are imploring him to stop and, you know, saying that he's going to kill the person who's person he has on the ground. And you can also hear the person saying, you know, I can't breathe and showing extreme distress. So I think it's rare. It's very rare that you have a video like this one. That is for sure. Chrissy, it it seems to me you put your finger on the key distinction because we all remember, I mean, Mike and I uh, covered the Rodney King case where, of course, they had a video uh, and, and Rodney King uh, the, and the police officers in that case were, you know, acquitted, and then the feds came in and and did a successful civil rights prosecution. But the distinction between, you know, the split second decision that police officers are often required to make that becomes a big part of the defense, because as I understand it, and it's what makes it so difficult, isn't it, that basically jurors are instructed that they have to essentially put themselves in the shoes of the police officers and determine whether what they did was reasonable given the circumstances. Exactly. And and it's not, this, you know, comes out straight out of Supreme Court jurisprudence. It's not supposed to be viewed from, you know, 2020 hindsight. It's supposed to be taken from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene based on all of the circumstances, you know, known to him or her at the time. And yes, you know, if it, if it's a situation that involves what's, you know, a rapidly unfolding set of circumstances or events or a split second judgment, then, you know, police officers under the law get a lot of deference to make decisions to protect other people and to protect themselves. And, you know, if you take the Rodney King case as an example, you know, that is something that 
you know, I remember that video, seeing it when it when it was released, and you know, it was shocking to see. And the beating went on for a long period of time, but it was not a situation where the subject was handcuffed or restrained. You know, the officers were claiming, hey, we're still trying to get him under control. He's still resisting. And ultimately, when he was convicted in uh, when the officers were convicted in federal court, it wasn't based on the entire incident. It was based on, you know, a series of kicks that continued after he was after Rodney King was deemed to have been brought under control. Christy, after uh, the, the George Floyd killing last summer, you wrote a, a really interesting piece in The Atlantic and and you wrote something that really caught my attention. You said, I won many difficult convictions. The shamelessness of the recent events has driven home to me that we and our state and local counterparts should have tried to win many more. Why didn't you? Why why didn't you and your fellow prosecutors? So I think a lot of reasons, you know, that these cases are incredibly difficult, again, especially the ones that involve what you would call the split second decision making. And I think there are a whole host of factors that sometimes counsel against, you know, I thought, you know, other people I I worked with thought, you know, and people around the country thought, you know, counseled against sometimes bringing cases. And that is, it's hard to second guess what an officer is doing if there is anything present that could reasonably suggest that he or she is facing a threat. But beyond that, there's another calculus that goes into this. And that is that these, these cases can cause a lot of collateral damage to folks. Like if you if you are able to secure cooperation from law enforcement witnesses who have to take the stand and testify against their colleagues, often you know facing their colleagues in a courtroom and have to go back to work with those people, you want to be as sure as you possibly can be that you have a really good chance of winning a jury verdict. Because when you when you don't, when you when you press a case to trial and you don't win, you know, sometimes the people who participated in it and who tried to do the right thing and who tried to tell the truth and who stood up for what was right end up facing some pretty severe repercussions. So, you know, I think there's a real sense of like, um, you know, being worried about pressing forward with cases and not winning them and being, you know, being worried that jurors won't take it seriously and being worried that you will leave things in a worse place than you found them. So I think it's a really difficult set of calculations, but I also think that it's important to, when you see an incident that really does meet the elements of an offense and you believe that you could sustain a verdict of guilty in an appellate court if you won, then, you know, just recent events have suggested to me that, you know, we really need to be as aggressive as we can, that if we don't try to hold these folks accountable, they will just continue trying to get away with it. An example of the difficulties might be the Michael Brown case in Ferguson, Missouri, which, as I understand, if you can talk about, you helped review. And that's one where emotions ran really high. The community was up in arms. Uh, uh, Michael Brown had been shot by a police officer, Darren Wilson. But the um, uh, state decided that it could not bring charges. And the Justice Department chose not to bring a civil rights case there. Talk a little bit about that, how the Civil Rights Division came to reach that conclusion and how it 
might differ from the uh, Chauvin trial we have going on right now? Well, so that, you know, that that case was an incredibly tragic set of circumstances. You know, any time you have a, a young person, 18 years old, killed on the street at that time in his life, it's obviously a great tragedy. And the first reports of what had gone on in that case were that um, Michael Brown had effectively been executed while, um, you know, standing with his hands up, attempting to surrender. And uh, there was a, a lengthy report issued by the Justice Department that details what the lengthy investigation of the evidence in the case showed and, you know, of course, done under the federal statute. But, you know, the, the evidence just did not indicate that it, that is actually what had happened. You know, there were he, multiple, he didn't have his hands up or there was didn't yeah, have his hands right. up, wasn't surrendering. Um, there were multiple witnesses who, in fact, said he was advancing on on Darren Wilson, having refused commands to stop, um, you know, after he had, again, with multiple witnesses and lots of other evidence after he had actually um, attempted to assault Wilson in the police car. So, again, that's a that's a judgment you know, Wilson is making and you have the federal statute that requires you to prove that he has willfully used, you know, excessive force. So the evidence just did not match up to that. But one thing I will say, though, is and I think is the other federal investigation into the pattern and practice of conduct in the Ferguson Police Department showed is that you can certainly see um, why people in Ferguson were so distrustful of the police and why Michael Brown might have been distrustful of the police when he encountered them on that day because of the overall context of the con- uh, of the conduct and the clear, you know, systemic racism with which within which that was situated. So, you know, a lot of times criminal criminal inquiries are imperfect vehicles for, you know, solving the problems that surround police conduct in this country. And that happened to be a time in the Justice Department when we had us when we had leadership in the Civil Rights Division that was committed to looking at the full context of these situations and not just viewing them as, you know, individual incidents and determining whether an individual person was culpable, but rather the entire system that led to a system failure. I mean, I think any time you end up in a situation where you have a person who has been shoplifting ends up dead or a person who passes a bad, you know, 20 ends up dead or a person who sells loose cigarettes on the street ends up dead. That's a failure in policing. And we need to acknowledge that whether somebody is criminally culpable for it or not. Christy, um, Mike was uh, uh, talking before about the the strengths of the prosecution's case in in, in the Chauvin case, largely the videotape, but also there are eyewitnesses. Um, If you were uh, a prosecutor in this case, uh, what would you be concerned about? What 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 are the what are the weaknesses? What would you be looking to uh, to to deal with in terms of the defense uh, case? Well, I think you're always as a as a prosecutor in a in a case like this, especially you're concerned with the fact that and this is this is right. This is a fair and right and just thing. But, you know, the the prosecution has to prove every element of the case beyond a reasonable doubt. It has to get all 12 jurors to be unanimous about every element 
of the case. So the defense rightly does not have to prove anything. And all they have to do is establish doubt about any piece of it in the mind of one juror, really, to to hang uh, the case and create a mistrial. So I think, you know, what you saw in the opening statements, if folks watched them yesterday, is, you know, I think laid out pretty well what the what the contested issues in the case will be. The prosecution has to prove with each of the charges that it has, not that Derek Chauvin intended to kill George Floyd, but that his actions caused George Floyd's death. They don't have to prove that the actions were the sole cause of the death, but they do have to prove that uh, Chauvin's actions were a substantial factor in the death. So as you saw in the in the opening statements, the defense is going to try to raise doubt about what actually caused George Floyd's death. And they're going to do it by pointing to um, the fact that George Floyd, like many Americans, you know, struggled with opioid addiction that he had, um, according to the toxicology report, drugs in his system. And so they'll be trying to raise doubt over what actually caused Mr. Floyd's death. And then the other thing that they will do, and this happens also in every police case, is that they will try to argue, try to convince at least one or two jurors that there was some like legal justification in Derek Chauvin's mind for the technique that he used. Um, They will try to argue that it is some kind of reasonable police practice to restrain a person the way that Chauvin did with his knee on his neck for nine and a half minutes. And they will probably present some expert witnesses, you know, on all sides of both of those issues. Well, that would seem to be a pretty tough argument to make uh, that uh, nine minutes uh, of a knee uh, on the guy's neck is, uh, is legitimate police behavior. But let's Let's say they can make some headway on the cause of death. Apparently, even the prosecution is not totally satisfied with what the medical examiner ruled because he left open that there could have been multiple causes for death. There are three charges here, right? Mm -hmm. You know, second degree murder, third degree murder and manslaughter. That's not going to help them. The the cause of death issue isn't going to help them on the manslaughter charge, right? Even if they can persuade the jury or a juror that the uh, the drugs could have been the main cause of death or a main cause of death, they still have the manslaughter charge. Well, even with the manslaughter charge, you have to prove – my understanding of Minnesota law is that even with the manslaughter charge – you have to prove that a person, you know, has caused the death of another. So I or think contributed I, to. I or, think ca- no. Yeah. I think causation is a is is a yeah. thing in each of these charges. So I think if that that's really the where most of the eggs in the defense basket are going to go, because if they can convince jurors that the knee on the neck was not a substantial cause of death. Um, and rather something else was either the either the drugs in in Mr. Floyd's system or some underlying condition that he had, then they could they could potentially win on that. Now, having said that, yeah. <laughs> having said that, again, George Floyd was 
walking, talking, you know, to some extent at one point, you know, being a little bit, being somewhat resistant to the officers. He was totally under control for the nine minutes that that Chauvin's knee was on his neck, but he was walking, talking, drove his car, you know, drove to a store, bought cigarettes, was sitting in his car. Um, So he certainly was not on the point of death until after Derek Chauvin's knee was on his neck for nine and a half minutes. And I think for like two minutes after a fellow officer said, hey, I can't feel his pulse. So I think, you know, the the point the prosecutor made in his opening yesterday about how, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to tell you at the end of this case that you can believe your own eyes. You can believe what you think you saw, see here in this video is right. And that is that what caused George Floyd to die was Derek Chauvin's conduct. So I think the prosecution is really going to hammer not only the medical evidence of, you know, what causes a death under these sorts of circumstances, but also just plain old common sense, which is he was alive and then he was dead. What was the intervening factor? What do you think your uh, your former colleagues uh, in the uh, Justice Department Civil Rights Division are doing now? Would they be monitoring this case closely in, in the event that there was an acquittal? And, and so they could be prepared to come in quickly with a federal civil rights prosecution. Do they dispatch prosecutors there? Would there be someone there? So I I don't know under the current circumstances with, you know, COVID and travel restrictions and all sorts of things that have intervened to change the lives of of prosecutors everywhere. Well, I certainly can tell you that, y- yes, there would be federal j- jurisdiction to review this case uh, to determine whether you know the the federal interest is met by how it is resolved. So, if there were to be an acquittal in this case, um, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department would, would would review it rigorously. You know, I don't know. There are different approaches that you can take in these cases. You can wait until the state is finished with its its work. Um, you know, before the federal work starts, they can operate sometimes in parallel. They will try very hard not to to do things that would, you know, negatively impact the state case. But I'm you can be assured that, you know, if this case results in an acquittal, there will be a rigorous review on the more under the more stringent, you know, federal statute by people who, you know, I certainly have great confidence in, you know, to to give us a, a thorough professional you know, look to this case under the federal statute. Um, I really, I hope that doesn't become necessary, but yes. I think the Justice Department also plays a role uh, in the event of an acquittal. And then if there were protests and riots and violence, uh, like there was in, uh, in the wake of the Rodney King case um, of of trying to lower tensions to send in, I think it was, what is it? The community relations community service, relations service would go in yes. there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it does seem like there would be Justice Department involvement if there if there were an acquittal in some form. I would I would think so. And certainly I would think, you know, under under this administration, which I think has an approach to enforcing our civil rights laws, let's say, as I think different from the one that um, Attorney General Barr had. But, I, you know, I will say that one of the things that underscores, though, is that really under any standard that you you apply here. I think it would be very difficult for any reasonable, fair-minded person who understands law enforcement and what law enforcement officers are supposed to do and how they are trained and what they are taught, you know, to look at this and to think and to have any notion 
that this was an acceptable, appropriate use of force. So whether it's Bill Barr or it's Eric Holder or it's Merrick Garland, you know, I think there's a lot of people in this country who can hopefully agree that this was an excessive use of force. So stepping back from the Chauvin trial for a moment, in the year, almost year that's happened since the uh, the killing of, of George Floyd, what do you think prosecutors have learned or have they changed in terms of their overall approach to incidents of excessive police force? I, I noticed, incidentally, that just yesterday, the DOJ Civil Rights Division lost a prosecution against three cops in St. Louis. So I, I'm just sort of curious, what's, what's changed? Have prosecutors changed as a result? You know, I do think that in recent years, you know, with the number of higher profile cases that we have seen, and, you know, last year there was the case involving the Dallas police officer who said that she, you know, accidentally went into the wrong house and, you know, killed a man in his own apartment. You know, she was convicted. It was a few years ago in Minneapolis that the that the Philando Castile, you know, trial got so much attention. So there there has been a lot of attention paid to these incidents and a lot of, I think, public discussion of what the weaknesses are in the ability that prosecutors have, both state and federal, to hold them accountable. And I do think there has been some learning that has gone on. I think you've seen, you know, I think a metamorphosis in the way local prosecutors are starting to look at these cases. And in particular, you know, what one of the one of the things that I think was good and useful and, you know, really sort of part of the special sauce of the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice is that we had a specialized unit that specialized in these cases and in figuring out how to put on the strongest cases that we could, you know, by both by becoming subject matter experts on issues of like police training and the kinds of medical issues that come up in these cases, but also being independent of the local jurisdiction. It is really difficult for prosecutors to investigate and prosecute the police officers that they work hand in glove with on a daily basis to do cases. So I think you're seeing more and more Local jurisdictions form specialized units to review police misconduct and that are made up of people who don't work with them every day, you know, prosecuting their day-to-day docket of cases. And so what you see here in this case is you had the state attorney general come in, you know, and create a team to investigate and prosecute this case that exists outside of the Minneapolis Police Department and the Hennepin County DA's office. Because, you know, however difficult, however hard you may try to be um, to be impartial in those situations, it just inevitably is really difficult for prosecutors to basically judge their own team members um, in these cases. And I think they they don't do it well. And I think they're starting to understand that and to hand that job off to others. You know, Krista, you mentioned police training and, uh, you know, it made me think of a line that Eric Nelson, uh, Chauvin's lawyer, used yesterday in his opening statements. Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over his 19-year career. And I just, you know, just thinking about that, you know, I just wonder, what does it say about the Minneapolis police force that this guy who did what he did could have been on the force for 19 years. 
Well, I'm going to be really interested to see what the evidence is for how Derek Chauvin was trained to act in that manner um, over his entire 19 year career, because I think you've got you're you're right. <laughs> you've got several possibilities here. One is, is that that just is not true. You know, my, my understanding is that there are going to be witnesses from the Minneapolis Police Department who are going to testify that, no, we don't teach people that they can hold handcuffed people face down on the ground with our knees on their necks for nine and a half minutes. Having said that, you know, if there is any sort of ambiguity in the training that that officers receive about when they can use these neck holds and if there's any suggestion being made to them that that is some sort of reasonable, you know, non-dangerous compliance technique that they can use and expect to use safely, then yeah, that would that would say something about, you know, a need for a much broader inquiry in to the Minneapolis Police Department. And I think that brings up a point that I think, you know, some folks always make with these cases, which is, you know, it's rarely a situation when a police officer does something like this, that it's an indication that only that officer is a problem. Because here you had how many other officers stand by and, and, you know, enable him in doing it and not want to stand up and testify about what he did. So anytime you have that, you have an entire department that has a problem and it's bad for the good police officers um, and policing generally not to inquire into the holistic nature of the problem. Let me put a little, a little bit of a different spin on this, which is it's it not, not exactly training, but if, if throughout your career, you know, for 19 years, you have engaged in certain kinds of conduct for which you have n- never been held accountable or rarely been held accountable, then it's not crazy to draw an inference from that, that that is, that is acceptable behavior. And, and you actually, Victoria alluded to your piece in The Atlantic, and you made an interesting point, uh, a way to sort of turn this problem around, which is that, of course, we always talk about, you know, for obvious reasons, these, uh, you know, these shocking cases of police brutality that lead to people dying or, or being, uh, you know, badly, uh, severely injured. But you suggest that prosecutors actually need to have to start going after, be a lot tougher in cases uh, where they abuse their badge in maybe less severe ways. Um, you know, the, all of the kind of the the pushing and the shoving and, and that kind of treatment that gets romanticized in cop shows. It's almost like it made me think of almost like the broken windows theory of, of, uh, of, of policing in excessive force cases, that if you don't start to, to get serious about those kinds of cases – uh, then they then cops will act with impunity. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And I think I you know I think just take a step back from this incident. It is very possible that the defense attorney and and through some witnesses is going to make an argument in this case that Chauvin used this technique other times and that it did not result in anyone dying from it. And, and I've heard that I don't know how many different times. In cases I've done, well, where oh well, I you know we knock each other, knock these people out, you know, with sleeper holds all the time, and they don't die; it's totally safe. Or if you look at the number of times, you know, NYPD officers in various inquiries over the years have been found to use chokeholds. You know, most of the time it does not result in somebody dying or even being severely injured, but it's still a really dangerous, really inappropriate use of force in virtually any circumstance other than the officer is facing a deadly threat him or herself. 
And yes, when they are allowed to get away with these things over and over, what it says to them is I can do this. I'm allowed to do this. And one of the things I am a little bit concerned about um, in this case, and again, I, I want to see how the evidence comes in uh, and I want to see, you know, in what manner in which the prosecution proposes to use it. But, you know, I've read that there is an intention to maybe try to establish some sort of a pattern of behavior by Chauvin. And what I'm worried about is that if he's behaved this way in the past, but no one has ever reprimanded him, that that's actually an argument that might he might try to make play into his own hands of like, I've done this before and no one ever told me anything was wrong with it. You know, I really hope that that is not how things have played out, um, but it would not be it would not be unprecedented in what I have seen in police departments around the country. He'd done it before, but there probably was not a video like this one, which transforms everything. That's the other thing, right. too. Like you hear about these incidents, but until until you see them, it doesn't drive home exactly how dangerous this is. All, all sorts of things happen and people don't end up dying. You know, the right set of circumstances have to come together in a lot of different cases for somebody to end up dead or seriously injured, which doesn't mean it's not the officer's fault. It's his fault. But if you'd had this incident or some other incident where you see somebody put in a chokehold for, for something similarly ridiculous, like a property crime, but the person doesn't end up dead, do you have the same attitude about it? The point I tried to make in that Atlantic piece is, you know, that's exactly why we have to bring those cases, because the next time they do it, somebody could end up dead. A shove can easily turn into somebody, you know, cracking their skull if it works out the wrong way. So, you know, in, in the wake of the, the Ferguson riots and uh, one of the other things that the Department of Justice did on top of individual prosecutions was... Uh, broad settlements with police departments throughout the United States. When the Trump administration began, uh, then Attorney General Sessions rolled back many of those settlement agreements. Do you think that we're going to see an uptick in efforts by the current Department of Justice to pursue those kind of broad scale sweeping reforms of police departments? I do. I think that is one of the department's most powerful tools. And, you know, I think Attorney General Sessions, with all due respect, got it precisely wrong when he said it was demoralizing to police departments to review the broad pattern of conduct of policing. It's disrespectful to police departments and disrespectful to professional police officers to suggest that this is the way professional officers who take an oath to uphold the Constitution and who you know undergo years of training are supposed to behave. It's not, it's dangerous for them. You know, this argument that Chauvin is trying to make that he felt afraid of the bystander crowd. Well, what was making him afraid? It was what he was doing. It was their reaction to what he was doing. If he was doing his job appropriately, then, you know, everybody would probably be getting along a lot better and no one would be afraid. I think Barr's argument was uh, that these consent decrees were effectively judicial takeovers of police departments around the country. I take it you don't agree with that. Uh, you know, unless you consider the United States Constitution to be a judicial takeover of a police department, then no, I don't agree with that. <laughs> okay. Well, um, on that note, uh, Christy, I want to thank you. Uh, really helpful insights and in understanding the issues in this monumental trial. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, and I hope this comes out the way I think uh, most of us feel that it should. 